everybody. Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, we frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Who doesn't want to love their body? Who doesn't want to be happy and have a big smile on their face all the time, right? What is a great life to you? Have you ever sat down and defined it? I think that's an important starting point. You know, is it to be healthy? Is it to be happy? Is it to be strong? Is it to have great sex? Is it to have a great relationship with your family? What is it? Is it to be wealthy? Is it to be recognized and be significant? You have to define all those things before you can start to create them. So I suggest you sit down and do that. I've had an amazing opportunity lately to talk to some really incredible guests, travel the world, meeting amazing people. And today's guest is no exception. Dr. Alberto Villoldo is our guest today. And I've been following Dr. Villoldo for a better part of a year now after hearing him on a podcast and being absolutely fascinated with his calm presence and his brilliance of being able to articulate the integration of the spiritual reality with our tangible reality. So the energetic world with the real world, ultimately what we would interpret to be the real world, which is being sensed by our five senses, right? So there's things that exist outside of our five senses. We know that, you know, if our visual field takes in 90% of our information that is interpreted by our brain, and our visual field is only seeing 1% of the visual spectrum or of the total spectrum of light. How interesting is that to think about that? Anyways, that's you know like watching those movies on or videos on YouTube where you're kind of getting perspective on things. It's important. So Dr. Velodo is going to tell us a little bit about uh, his journey towards spirituality, some of the misconceptions around plant medicines, some of the things you should know about plant medicines. And ultimately, how to stay grounded in this spiritual journey that we're ultimately living, whether you choose to admit it or not, at some point in your life, there's going to be some inclusion of spirituality. And whether you choose to make that religion or anything, there will always be some realization of spirituality. This is one of the best conversations I've ever had around this. Dr. Valdo is a trained scientist. He's also an anthropologist. He spent a lot of time at universities in California and San Francisco. And now he's living in the jungle in Chile and teaching people how to access their spiritual side and make less mistakes. You are going to hear that there's a lot of things that should happen before you are considering plant medicines. How do you optimize your body to really actually benefit from that? Should you be doing multiple journeys or just one? A lot of really interesting questions are answered in this podcast and even from things like how to pay attention to your gut and why the gut is so important to any spiritual transition or any spiritual journey in the production of serotonin, the optimization of the pineal gland and all these things that exist in the body that maybe people don't know about. Maybe people don't understand that you should know if you're considering going down the pet medicine path or even if you're not, maybe how you can access these states without having to do that stuff. Imagine that because we do have the ability. All these substances that people are chasing through plant medicines already exist in your body. And you just need to learn how to bring them out. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. I know I did. Dr. Valolo is an absolutely brilliant man with such a beautiful energy. It's awesome to talk to him. Loved it. I hope you guys love it too. Share it with at least one person that you know will love it as well. This podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Uh, if you guys are into this spiritual space and optimizing your mind, optimizing your life, get over to foursigmatic.com right now and pick up some mushrooms. My favorites, as you guys know, I'm going to brag on these things every day. If you're not already taking Lion's Mane, do so. I hope Four Sigmatic one day sells out of Lion's Mane because of all of the talking I do about it. They've also got some really new, interesting superfood products that I've been experimenting with a little bit. So they've got a superfood protein that I really like. 
taste awesome. They've got some superfood masks and things that you can put on your face and you can eat, which is super interesting. Ashley and I were talking about that on a podcast recently on one of our Q&As. I was ironically sitting on my desk and she was saying how she was just putting it on her face, <laughs> but it also eats in her oatmeal. What a good combination, but at least it shows the quality of the stuff that's going on in your body and, and things that are natural to heal your body from the outside and the inside. Without further rambling from me, head over to foursigmatic.com and check out all of their mushroom products. Pick up what you can, 15% discount off this order and all of your orders if you use the code MUSCLE. I hope you guys enjoy the show with Dr. Alberto Valaldo. Dr. Velodo, like as I said prior to recording, extremely grateful for you making the time to join me today. And I'm going to dig into everything I can to get all of your wisdom. So be prepared for a big brain dump on everything there is to know about you and how this started. So I've done some fair amount of research into you and you've got a very interesting history and now you're impacting so many people's lives. You've got a tremendous number of incredible books out. And I'm just curious because I think a lot of people right now in society are going down this path of spiritual realization, maybe Mm -hmm. some conscious awakening happening around the planet. But you did that, what, maybe 40 years ago, it seems? (laughs) Yeah, it feels like yesterday. But yeah, it was about 40 years ago. Yeah. So how did that come about for you? Well, I'll tell you, the um, this awakening that you're talking about is long overdue. Yeah. And I'm so happy that it's happening right now at this time of tremendous crisis that we're living in. We really have to set this in a biological context, Ben, because during times of crisis, particularly the climate crisis we're living, these are times when our species is threatened with extinction. And when we are threatened with extinction is when we can take a quantum leap, not just to evolve incrementally by acquiring new skills and new traits, but quantum leaping into becoming a whole new human. Our bodies is not going to change much, but the quality of our intelligence will. And this is what biology selects for. Biology selects for what we call spirituality, which is really intelligence. Ah, that's interesting. I've never thought about that. And that that makes a lot of sense, right? People who finally decide to start taking care of their body and start taking care of their earth, I think maybe, as you say, would be selected for. Does that sound in line with what you're... I believe is. Yep, they're totally selected for. Let me give you an example. There are about 40 million species in the planet, 40 million different species, and only two of them is the female allowed to live into menopause. With all of the other 39.99 million species, when the female is no longer reproductive, viably reproductive, she's eliminated. So only in two species, and they're the most intelligent species in the planet in humans and in orcas, is a female allowed to become a grandmother, to go to menopause. They're becoming the storehouses of wisdom. So we're taking part in an experiment in intelligence, in consciousness. And nature prefers brains over brawn, over teeth, over muscle, over speed. She prefers brains. And the two biggest brains per body weight ratio species are humans and orcas. And we're allowed to live long and healthy lives and not die young like every other species in the planet does. 
Interesting. So why do you think the spiritual awakening is happening now? Do you feel it's a result of necessity because, you know, the number of people coming out of the planet and, and it seems like if we're not becoming aware, we're going to end up killing the species? Is that just out of necessity? That's a definite possibility. I did a book a few years ago with Dr. David Perlmutter. You probably know his work with Grain Brain. Yeah. And he and I wrote a book called The Neuroscience of Enlightenment. And our premise was that enlightenment had been hijacked by religion. And when it's really the agenda of the species, we're moving towards higher intelligence, towards communion, towards understanding that it's important to care for the body, to care for the earth, and to have these experiences of timelessness and of bliss. This is what we're programmed for. And we need to support it with our diet, with exercise, with sleep, with nutrition, with the NRF2 activators to switch on the longevity genes. So we know how to do that today. We know how to be part of the experiment. And this is, of course, the N equal one experiment, where my experiment is called Alberto. Right. Yours is called Ben. Yeah. And That'll place us in the in an outlier of the bell curve, not in the big fat part of the middle where people die from cancer and dementia and heart disease, but really as an outlier that can experience exceptional performance and exceptional awareness. So that was actually the book that really got my attention to follow you was the neuroscience of enlightenment because I'm very much into trying to understand how the brain works and, and, and bridge the gap between this consciousness piece and enlightenment and how do we kind of in integrate these things and is enlightenment like really a thing yeah. and is it something we could find and attain within realistic means? I'd love for you to just maybe describe what is the neuroscience of enlightenment? You know, is it a particular chemical state that exists in the brain? Is it a particular electrical state in the brain because, you know, our logical minds are going after these very, very, you know, logical processes, right? We're going after these tangible, you know, is it going to be an endomide? Is it going to be, you know, GABA or, or, or sorry, yeah, or is it going to be alpha or gamma or like what's the signature? And then, yeah. then there's the esoteric part that I'd love to get into as well, which is, you know, going down these, these parts of the energy world. And uh, where does that integration lie? You know, it lies at all of these levels. I spent about 25 years. Um, I was a professor at the University of California and then uh, went to the Amazon to work with the Amazon shamans who didn't have MRIs and they didn't have technology, but they had studied the mind from the inside. So I worked with their sacred plants. You know, I took ayahuasca at the headwaters of the Amazon 45 years ago before it was popular and, um, and also studied how these ancient explorers use the mind to turn within instead of turning it without like we do in our Western science. And they speak about four levels of creation, that the great spirit created the world at four levels. And they call them the level of serpent, which is the literal level of tables and molecules and brain chemistry. The level of jaguar, which is the level of the mind, of beliefs, and of creating psychosomatic disease and the level of stress with all the chemical responses that go with it. The third is the level of hummingbird, which is the level of the sacred. And the hummingbird is such a great metaphor because it drinks only from nectar. It's no longer working on its own crap, you know, and it's mommy issues and daddy issues and scarcity issues and self-esteem. It's drinking only from nectar and is seeing possibilities where everybody else sees only problems. And then the fourth level was the level of eagle, 
And there you experience only the energetics, the essence, and not the form. But you need to address it at these four levels. We need to understand the brain chemistry. And I'll take you through some of that if you're up for it. I would love to. Now, is that an ascension? So it sounds like that's kind of an ascension toward, right? So we started the reptile, I think it was, and then, you know, progressing upward. Precisely. And it's curious because these correspond to the four different brains that we have. We have a reptilian brain that we share with the reptiles. We have a mammalian brain that we share with the mammals, and that's the brain of the emotions. And we have a neocortex, the hummingbird brain, that's the brain of, of Einstein and Bach and science and discovery. And then we have the ego brain, which are the prefrontal cortex, which is what some neuroscientists are calling the God brain or the cosmic brain. Yeah, so let's begin with a reptile. <laughs> The brain needs to, in order to experience certain states of consciousness, you need the substrate. You need the brain chemistry so that if your brain is flooded with the stress hormones, with adrenaline and cortisol, you're not going to be able to meditate. You're not going to be able to be in the flow. You're going to be angry. <laughs> so if you want to experience bliss and transcendence, you need the right brain chemistry. And the key player here is serotonin. So serotonin is one of the neurotransmitters in the brain and the body. It's everywhere. Trees have it, whales have it, lizards, birds, humans. Most of our serotonin is produced in the gut. So if your gut flora is been wrecked by antibiotic use, you're not going to be producing serotonin. If your gut flora is working well, you're going to have a good supply of serotonin, which then every night the pineal gland tr transtweaks serotonin and turns it into melatonin so we can sleep. And if you have switched off your fight or flight response, if you're not producing a bunch of the fight or flight chemicals, if you're not ready to kill and you're not running around angry, if your brain is not a cortisol martini and or an adrenaline floating in adrenaline, if you quiet the fight or flight system then the pineal gland, which is the master gland, will begin to methylate. It'll begin to methylate serotonin into melatonin. And if you remember from high school, the formula for serotonin is 5-HT, 5-hydroxy, which is water, tryptamine. Serotonin is a tryptamine. And if you can get it to the pineal gland and enough of it, it'll begin to methylate it. And when you add a couple of methyl bonds to a tryptamine, you end up with dimethyltryptamine, which is ayahuasca. You end up with the most potent psychedelic known to man. Yep. And we produce this naturally when we dream. Have you noticed how your dreams can be the weirdest dreams on the planet? But during the dream, they feel perfectly normal, <laughs> perfectly natural. You're under the influence. Your brain is getting high. It's produced when you're making love. It's produced when you're having a really great workout. It's produced when you're dying to help you get across from this world to the next. So this is the substrate. This is the brain chemistry that's involved. Do you have a theory on evolutionarily why we would have had DMT? Is it just an attempt to let us realize finally that we're integrated with this thing? We're all one? Is that the kind of evolutionary necessity? You know, that's my hit on it. I think that that's it. 
But you find it in trees, you find DMT in horses and grasshoppers and plants. It seems to be the universal spirit molecule. Very, very interesting. So someone then must abstain or mm. um, learn to be in control of stress hormones and this fight or flight response in order to finally transcend into the state where their body is healthy enough to achieve these elevated states. Precisely. This is the formula for longevity because if your brain is a cortisol martini, if you're living with a bunch of stress in your life with adrenaline and cortisol, first, the hippocampus in the brain is rich in cortisol receptors. And the hippocampus is where you have a new experience, where you wake up with the person you've been married to for 25 years and you go, wow, who is this person in my bed today? What a wonderful opportunity to discover who they are. But if your hippocampus is damaged, you're going to wake up and say, who the hell is this person in my bed and how did they get here? <laughs> you're not going to have a new experience of love, of life. Right. So the first thing is to attenuate the fight or flight. It's an ancient response that really served us when we were running away from leopards and tigers. But today, it's killing us. It's creating psychosomatic disease, stress-related disorders. So a lot of the books that you've written are around this concept of shamanism. I'd love to get into that a little bit. But do you think, you know, speaking of DMT, do you think the actual administration of DMT is maybe a spiritual path to or a quicker path to understanding the spiritual existence? Everyone's living with so much stress in their society. Is accessing this DMT, you know, ritual potentially an opportunity for people to start to understand how to stress less? You know, I think so, Ben. I know today of more ayahuasca ceremonies happening in Miami and in New York than I do in the Amazon. Yeah. It's, a, it's everywhere. Now, the problem is that if your hippocampus is damaged, you're not going to bring the benefits back. You're going to have seen God. It's going to be incredible. But then your hardware is not going to be able to support the new software. So before we, you know, I know that many of our listeners are, are, you know, we're all experimenters. This is, this we're explorers. This is part of what nature calls us to do, to repair the hippocampus first. And the things that repair the hippocampus, one of those things is DHA, the omega-3 fatty acids. In six weeks, clinical dose of omega-3 of DHA which is two to three grams or up to four grams a day or a piece of wild-caught salmon every day will upgrade the brain, will repair the hippocampus, will release the stem cells that are banked away in every organ in the body, but especially in the brain, so that when you do a ceremony like an ayahuasca ceremony, you can bring back the gifts and not just schedule one for the next following Sunday. <laughs> That's beautiful because that's a big thing, right? And speaking of people doing it in New York and, and Miami, you're absolutely right. And there's a lot of people doing it and they're not experiencing the benefits, right? They're not experiencing the cleansing. They're not experiencing the awakening. And then they try to reintegrate into their life and it's all just lost. It's an attempt to escape rather than discover. And that this, I think it's a huge problem. It becomes an escapist. Pleasant, very beautiful. And people have tremendous insights, but they can't translate them. I remember the first time I did the plant medicine in the, in the headwaters of the Amazon. I had to fast, do detox herbs and fast for two weeks. And, and I would ask the, the shamans, why do I have to take this bark that tastes like crap? It's horrible. 
And they would say, this is to take the civilization out of you so you can reconnect to nature. And I'll tell you a quick story. I was working with this medicine woman, very powerful woman, and her husband. And we were walking through the Amazon one time, and we came to a clearing. And they said to me, Alberto, walk across the clearing and see what happens. And I walked across the clearing, and the Amazon is full of song, the macaws and the monkeys and the parrots. And the first step I took, I could hear the music of the Amazon. The second, the third, everything stopped. And they came up to me and they said, see, they know that you don't belong here. They know that you've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden and you don't belong in the Amazon. You don't belong in nature. And I go, sure, you know, I might be a white boy from California, but you're not going to sell me that. There were two Shipibo Indians. We were in Shipibo territory. Nearby, they were cooking a boa on a spit for their afternoon meal. And I go up to them. I was convinced that the animals had smelled my deodorant, my toothpaste, my mosquito repellent. And I asked them if I could have some of the boa fat. And they said, sure. They were collecting it in a Coca-Cola can. And I stripped down to my shorts and I start smearing my body in boa grease. And they're looking at me a little strangely. And I go, it's okay. I'm an anthropologist. Because I was convinced I was going to go back into the rainforest. And the animals were going to smell another boa slithering back into the forest. Well, I go back to the edge of the woods. I take the first step. I'm buck naked except for my shorts. Lathered in boa grease. The second step is full of song. The third step. And everything stops again, (laughs) except for about 600 flies that I had around me. And it wasn't until a decade later that I was able to walk in the rainforest and have it continue singing around me, have it recognize me as somebody who had returned to nature, had returned to the mother, who did not live in fight or flight and constant conflict and battle with myself, who was not a predator any longer. How did that look for you? Like that process from being uh, in civilization to becoming now reconnected? Because that I think that's what everyone, or not everyone, but many people seem to crave. There's a process there. And that I think is where all of the beauty lies in, in, in maybe allowing us to discover what that looks like. Yeah, this is what motivated me to write my book, especially The Neuroscience of Enlightenment, Power Up Your Brain with David Perlmutter. But my most recent book, Grow a New Body, you know, we're programmed to regenerate, but it's the stress response. It's the, it's the adrenaline, the cortisol that keeps us angry at ourselves and at the world. I had to heal the anger that I had towards myself, towards God, towards my family, towards women. And once I did that, then the Amazon welcomed me. I was able to go back to Eden, back into the garden. So we need to go through the healing process. Mm-hmm. And we need to do it through our diet. Diet is so important. Nutrition. We need to sleep well. We need to forgive, come up with a practice, like a forgiveness practice. And then we need to become explorers. I've heard the term forgiveness used or the necessity of forgiveness. And I've also heard the necessity of acceptance. So forgiveness assumes 
someone in that situation was wrong. There's an assumption of I've been wronged. It creates this victim mentality versus acceptance being like, hey, I just accept this as part of my journey. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like, is forgiveness the path? Is it just like, I need to forgive you for what you've done to me, assuming that now I'm, I'm placing blame on you? Or should I be focusing on accepting the situation? This is a great conversation because you got to, we have to step out of the victim, out of the victim role. For the shamans, they speak about a triangle of disempowerment, which has three elements to it. The victim, the rescuer, and the perpetrator. And while we're caught in that triangle, we just keep switching roles. We keep rescuing people. We keep becoming the aggressor, the one that hurts people. Or we're the victim that needs to be rescued. So we have to step out of those altogether. For the indigenous people, these three roles become the Indio, the Indian who's the victim, the conquistador that came from Spain and destroyed them, and the rescuer is the priest. So it's deadly. It's a very deadly triangle of disempowerment. We need to step out of that triangle and find the people that we believe that wronged us and thank them for the lessons. Where we get to the place where we're able to not only forgive and accept, but to say, how, wow, why did I have to learn that way? And thank you for teaching me. I'm never going to learn that way again. Yeah. Um Coming back to this conversation around um, the neuroscience, we brought up the pineal gland and there's been some conversation and not to be a conspiracy theorist, but there's been some conversation around um, how fluoride or certain chemicals in our water and our food supply can negatively impact the pineal gland. So any experience or thoughts around dietarily what we should be avoiding perhaps or dietarily what we should be including in our diet, just as around uh, how it influences brain health, particularly the pineal gland. You know, Ben, this is a really hot topic. I personally have a water filter that filters out fluoride because there's no science behind the idea that fluoride helps you protect your teeth. Absolutely none. Right. And fluoride seems to calcify the pineal gland. And the minute it becomes calcified, you're not able to produce DMT. You're not able to understand your interconnectedness with all things you slip back from that higher brain into that mammalian brain that lives in fear. And it's very easy to control the people who live in fear. Yep. It's very difficult to control people that are free. Is there ever been anybody who actually explored that? Like, I'm curious, you know, I thought maybe you would come across somebody and that actually explored, I mean, not whether or not it was done insidiously or, or you know, being a conspiracy theorist, but like, is there a direct correlation with fluoride calcifying the pineal gland? And we know that if the pineal gland is calcified, we can't access these states. Is that a direct correlation that I can make that assumption? You know, I've looked at the literature, I've looked at the research. The problem with studying the brain is the only organ in the body you cannot study without killing your subject. Right. So it's a problem. Right. But we have to remember also that scientific maxim, that correlation is not causation. So there exists a lot of correlation with the calcification of the pineal gland, the relationship to fluoride, and the inability to access these states. But we cannot tell with 100% certainty. But you know, we couldn't tell with 100% certainty 40 years ago that smoking would kill you. Remember the ads? My doctor smokes 
can't. Right. <laughs> and the fact that it's not been decisively proven, even today, that smoking, I think there's enough evidence today. Yes, it's not going to keep me from doing something that's harmful to me. I love it when I read studies to say it's not been proven by science. Like, you know, gravity wasn't proven by science until Newton demonstrated it 200 years ago, but things were falling really hard for thousands of years before science was able to document it. And, um, and today we're living in such a toxic environment. It's not only the fluoride, but the the heavy metal exposure that we have, the toxins in our food, in our air, in our water, the uh, the pesticides, the glyphosate, and our detoxification systems are overwhelmed. We're not able to detox. Remember that toxins are stored in the long-lived molecules, and the long-lived molecules are fat, and our brain is 70% fat. So we have a huge amount of toxins stored in the fat in the brain that we need to eliminate. And it's hard because the blood-brain barrier doesn't let a lot of traffic through. But today, that's absolutely essential. Even if you take the fluoride out of the water, your pineal will decalcify in three to four weeks. We're still needing to get the heavy metals, the mercury. Mercury is a neurotoxin. I remember when I was in the Amazon, 40 years ago, there was no cancer, there was no dementia, there was no heart disease until these people began to eat like us, and now they're starting to get sick like us and to die like us. Yeah, fascinating. How many of your books go down this path of you know the shaman, the healer, the sage being one of them? And you also speak about this brilliant term that I pulled out of one of your talks is healing at the source. And I thought that was really just an incredible way to think about it. I'd love for you to just maybe describe what that means and what that process looks like. So my son has been diagnosed with ADHD. And from the Western medical standpoint, you get diagnosed with ADHD, that's considered a Ritalin deficiency. <laughs> it's like, exactly wait, right. Wait. How old is your son? My son is now 26 years old, and he's off. He was on Ritalin for a short while, and he's off the Ritalin. He repaired his hippocampus, taking the fish oils, and he's learned to look at ADHD as part of the biology experiment that we're all part of, where he can multitask much better than any of us. So he's looking at what the opportunities are. But what is the source? We treat symptoms. In the West, we don't have a healthcare system. We have a disease care system. And we're treating symptoms. We're not treating causes. Right. We're not treating the source. So that's where the thought process comes, is looking at the emotions of the healing and going back through, or not the emotions of the healing, but the emotions of being one of the primary causes of disease? Psychosomatic the stress level, the brain chemistry is one of the primary drivers. But secondarily, it's the, um, the disconnection from nature. I'm convinced that that's really at the heart of so many of the maladies of, the, of, the, of modern man. So being the experienced doctor you are, the experienced medicine man, is it you know, from an energy vibration thing where we have to reconnect with the earth as far as the resonant frequency, Schumann frequency, or is it just the whole vibration of you know, all of the cosmic rays and the sun and the earth and the whole integration of it? What are your beliefs as far as how someone living in an, in an average world would need to, to reintegrate, which we've been paying attention to? Well, the first thing is what you put in your mouth. So what you eat, natural, organic, seasonal, you've got to um, 
to not take life personally. The minute you don't take it personally, your stress levels goes way, 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 way down. You need to repair the hippocampus so you can have a new learning experience. One of the ways, so there are a couple of tests for a damaged hippocampus. One of them is if you're driving on the freeway and anybody driving slower than you are is a grandmother who should not even have a driver's license. And anyone going faster than you are is a total lunatic who should be off the road. You know, you've got a damaged hippocampus because it's all about me. And this is what the hippocampus is all about me. When you heal the hippocampus, remember six weeks DHA, high dose, or fresh wild-caught salmon every day in your plate, eight ounces, six ounces. When you do that, it's all about we. What can we create together? You're not my enemy. You're not my adversary. You're my collaborator. You're not the person that hurt me, that wounded me. You were offering me a lesson. Life was offering me a lesson through this person that I demonized. Your whole perspective changes. And here's where the shamanic teachings come in, because the shamans speak about dreaming our world into being. And what we perceive, that all perception is projection. Everything that we perceive in the world, every situation we interpret is a projection of an internal map that we carry within us. If you can change the map, the world changes. Fascinating. Very, very fascinating. What does your day look like? You're living in Chile right now. What is it? What do you do most of the time? Well, you know, we have a retreat center in Chile where we actually do grow new body programs, where we are able to switch on codes in our code in our DNA that's in password protected regions now that will trigger regeneration. Where you can first, there's nobody in the planet older than seven years, because every seven years we grow an entirely new body. So the thing is, do you want to grow a body that's just a slightly older, more wrinkled version, or do you want to grow a vibrant, healthy, vital body that will take you to 120? (laughs) And we know how to do that today. That's the beauty of it. We know how to do that with diet, with food, with the neuronutrients, the brain nutrients. And our premise is that you have to access the higher cortical regions in the brain. You have to access higher intelligence to create psychosomatic health. And this will unlock, this is what nature is looking for, intelligence. It'll give you the password to these regions in our DNA that will trigger the release of stem cells that are banked in every organ in the body to regenerate the body. So for someone who's sitting at home, you know, in the, in the concrete jungle of North America or in Europe somewhere, and they maybe don't have the ability to get down to Chile to spend time with you in this recovery facility or optimization facility, what could be some, you know, first-line interventions, first-line steps to start uh, healing their brain and getting into this higher level of consciousness? Uh, in Chile, we're booked up. We have a two-year waiting list, actually, in our programs here. But you can do it at home. It's in my book, Grow a New Body. How do you, what systems do you regulate? And we can go into some of these systems. I know that your listeners are are very savvy in the science, but if you can downregulate mTOR, which is a protein sensor, if you can downregulate IGF-1, after a certain age, you're going to be preventing the dementias and the cancers and the heart disease that are untreatable today, but they're preventable. Right. You know, when I was in the Amazon, actually David Perlmutter and I went to the Amazon 
you know David from Grain Brain and his other books, and we were working in our book on the neuroscience, and we looked at the sacred plants of the shamans, and we looked at them in different cultures around the world. And we found that the sacred plants were not the psychedelic ones. Those were the teacher plants, the master plants. The sacred plants were actually the ones that switched on the sirtuins, the longevity chains. They switched on the production of mitochondria. They downregulated cell death. They protected mitochondria. And they turned on the longevity chains. So how do they know that these plants turn on that NRF2 detox pathway that switches on the longevity genes? And you ask them, and they said, simple. You know, the plants told us. And you go, what? Yeah, the plant. You don't talk to the plants, they ask me. Well, sometimes when they're dying, (laughs) but they commune with the plants. And so this is the key, and you can do this at home. We know what the NRF2 upregulators are. We know what will bring down mTOR, which is the target of rapamycin, which is a really fascinating story, the story of rapamycin. And I don't know if you want to get into that briefly. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so rapamycin was actually an antibiotic discovered in Easter Island, which is Rapa Nui. That's what it's called, rapamycin. And they found that it was an immune system inhibitor, extraordinary. Clinicians began to use it for organ transplants because you need to inhibit the immune system so the body doesn't reject the organ. Well, when you do that, opportunistic cancer cells just blow right up. They say, hey, the immune system is down. Let's have a party. Let's reproduce and you get cancers and you're pretty dangerous. But they found that people that were given rapamycin did not get cancer despite being on an immune suppressant. They did not get dementia. They didn't get heart disease. So about 20 years ago, researchers began to look at what was the target of rapamycin, and which is they call TOR, target of rapamycin. And for mammals, it's called mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. They still haven't found it, but they discovered that it's an ancient protein sensor that developed around 2,000 million years ago, and that regulates aging. It's one of the regulators of aging. So so would you recommend rapamycin supplementation for somebody then? Would that be something that's going to block that pathway? There's people researching that, and there are actually people doing that, but it's a little bit dangerous because you've got to be very fit, makes you prone to heart disease, if you're heart attacks if you're not very fit, and it is an immune suppressant. So it's not commonly used or available. But we know how to downregulate mTOR. We know that certain animal proteins, that you've got to cycle your animal proteins. Instead of eating them every day and three meals a day, you've got to cycle them. If, you could, if you're going to protein supplement, uh, try the, uh, the vegetable proteins, but cycle the animal ones. And then the second system that you want to downregulate is called IGF-1, which is a sugar sensor. And this developed around 500 million years ago because there were no carbohydrates in the planet until 500 million years ago, more or less. See, what happens originally in the planet, we had bacterial life, protein-based life forms. And they were feeding on the chemicals in the primordial soup. 
And their mechanism of getting energy was called chemosynthesis because they were feeding on chemicals. And then there was a big food crisis happening and they began to eat each other. And a quantum leap occurred at this point. And the quantum leap was the appearance of the new smartest bacteria in the world that could do photosynthesis, not chemosynthesis. They said, wow, there's all of this sunlight out here. Why don't we just feed directly on light? This is so cool. And they became the smartest, most successful bacteria. And they began to feed on the carbon dioxide in the environment and produce oxygen, which is what plants do when they do photosynthesis. They take CO2 and put out oxygen. And they were having a great time until this is when we began to find plant life appearing, which are carbs and sugars. And the sugar sensors appear. And what happened then is that the level of oxygen in the atmosphere began to get so high and so concentrated, and oxygen is very, very toxic. If you scuba dive, you know that after a certain depth, you've got to go on nitrox because oxygen is so toxic that they caused what it, archaeologists called the great oxygenation event or great oxygenation crisis, where 99% of all life forms died. And the most successful life forms in the planet were now not the ones that did photosynthesis, but the ones that were became the oxygen breathers that were able to breathe oxygen. And they're still around today. They're mitochondria. They're part of every cell and every living creature. Plants have mitochondria. Every animal has them. And they're the oxygen breathers. They produce CO2, and the plants take CO2 and produce oxygen for us. So these ancient systems developed to tell you when you could reproduce. Because, for example, during World War II, women stopped being fertile. They could not reproduce because there was starvation. There was no food. And having a baby is a very energy-intensive process. And nature will not let you do that. Instead, it will take you into repair, hoping that you will make it to the next spring and have enough food so you can reproduce. And that's why we find that fasting is so powerful because it triggers the repair systems that are very ancient systems that hope to take you to the next reproductive season. So if we can downregulate these two systems, cut back on our sugars, cycle our protein, our animal protein, we're going to be creating extraordinary states of health and detoxifying the body and switching on the repair mechanisms. But you knew all of this. Not quite. Not quite. That was a great uh, lesson in history for sure. I mean, and that all makes perfect sense. It all works coherently. So one thing that I want to make sure we, we touch on a little bit is this, this concept of energy medicine. And, you know, it seems to be very prevalent in our world today that people are talking about, um, you know, this energy medicine and, and the auras and the flow of energy. Is this something you touch on in your facility there in Chile? to heal people's energy or heal the flow of energy? And if you could just describe what that is and what energy medicine is. Well, energy medicine is, happens at many different levels. At the most biological level, it's mitochondrial medicine. How do you repair and restore mitochondria? They're the energy producers in the body. Their respiration happens. They take oxygen, they combust, and they store energy. They produce a molecule called ATP, which is the energy storage molecule. And it's interesting because plants will take light and turn it into carbs. And then mitochondria take carbs and fats and turn it back into light. 
and they turn it back into this molecule called adenosine triphosphate, three phosphate. Phosphate is phosphorus, is what the kids' sparklers are made of, it's light. Plants take light, turn it into life. We take, mitochondria take fuel and store it as light inside the body. Amazing symbiotic relationship. So we got to restore mitochondrial function through energy medicine because they're also in charge of not only producing energy, but of the death clock of apoptosis. They tell cells when they need to die. And when cells don't know that they need to die, we call that cancer. Cells who want to become immortal. But what the shamans do is they work with the energy field, with the luminous energy field that surrounds the physical body and that contains, it's an information field that contains the information about how you will get sick, how you may age, how you may repeat your family's dramas and illnesses, and how you might die. And what the shamans learn to do is to upgrade the information in the field so you wouldn't have to have disease happening in the body. So, uh, you know, it's been brought to my attention that the human beings can see 1% of the visual light spectrum. So would it be suggested that a shaman just has kind of trained themselves to see a, a different spectrum of this light that's uh, radiating or illuminating off of a person's body? Yeah, they, they sense it. They don't see it visually because their eyes are, have the same parameters that our eyes do. But they have ways of perception that are not relying on the physical eyes, but on your luminous eyes. What the mythical third eye, for example, which is the sixth chakra in the forehead, the center of the forehead, they are able to perceive through other senses, but then they take that signal and they transmit it extracerebrally to the visual cortex in the back of the head. And there, the visual cortex is the screening room generates an image and they believe that they're seeing it. But you know that that's not the case with the eyes because they'll see with the eyes closed as well. You can cover their eyes in a bandana and they'll still tell you what they see in the field. And not only they'll tell you how pretty the colors are, but they'll tell you all of the information, all of your history is recorded there. They can tell you who your grandmother slept with, you know, if, if that's interesting to you. <laughs> Very, very fascinating. I'm assuming that throughout your journeys, there's been quite a bit of medicine, uh, plant medicine incorporated into your path to the shamanistic reality that you live. Are you able to share any of your thoughts or whatever you feel you know, compelled to share with the audience around experiences within the plant medicine world? You know, my background is as an anthropologist, but I was working in a brain laboratory, actually, at San Francisco State University. And I've always been fascinated with the brain chemistry and why these plant medicines, why do they work? Why do we have receptors in our brain for these molecules? Why? Why is there a receptor for psilocybin in the brain or for ayahuasca or for LSD? Because they only work if there are receptor sites there. So in some way, I'm convinced that our evolution is closely related to the access of these higher states of consciousness where the nature of reality becomes perfectly clear and transparent, facilitated by these medicine plants and by a skilled shaman. You need the combination of the two. If you have the powerful medicine plant, but you don't have a skilled shaman, you're going to have a trip. Maybe a nice trip, maybe a sexy trip, maybe a terrible trip. 
But if you're in the hands of a master, they will help you to become free of all of those things and ideas and limiting beliefs about who you are and about what you came here to do in this planet. And then if you're lucky, you'll get a glimpse of of what your mission is, how you can make a difference in the world, what you came to learn and how you came to love and how you came to be part of a revolution in consciousness at the time when the earth is possibly going through an extinction, the extinction of humanity, possibly. So for someone who's never experienced this stuff before, how do you advise going about it? Is, is it, uh, how do we vet a shaman? How do we understand who's an expert and who's a charlatan? Because, you know, to be honest, in my journeys, I've run into some shaman who are absolutely charlatan, right? Or they're quote unquote shaman. And, you know, my belief around their ability to see and help and heal is skeptical at best. Um, so I'm very curious how someone who's unfamiliar with this stuff can start to dive into this world, short of reading your books, obviously, which is the first step. You have to be careful who you trust your brain to, particularly in an altered state. This is absolutely, yeah. absolutely critical. Yeah. So if you're going to work with a master, test them, ask them, how did you train? Where did you learn? Who were your teachers? What do you know? What's your agenda? Tell me and talk to people that have taken medicine with that person. Now, what I would recommend and what the shamans have done for millennia is to what we're calling microdosing. So microdosing is actually taking a tenth of a regular dose of a plant medicine and having a mild experience. And then creating a safe and sacred space, a quiet space for yourself to reflect. If you want to go and hang out at the discotheque, that's a different experience. You know, that's a rave. That's a party. Sure. But if you if you want to explore, become a an explorer of the inner world, you have to find a still place and a quiet place in nature, ideally, and a vision quest. And you have to prepare for it nutritionally also. So you ideally want to fast for two or three days so you're in ketosis. Because remember, the lower brain that lives in fear, the mammalian brain, operates on sugars. That's his favorite food source. The higher brain loves beta-hydroxybutyrate, loves the ketones, the fats. And if you do a three-day preparatory fast, then you're already having the fuel available to get your higher brain into gear. And then the plant medicine can really open up extraordinary things for you. Now, if you've just had a Krispy Kreme donut before you go into a sacred ceremony with ayahuasca, you're going to be stuck in your lower brain, in the sugar brain. That's very fascinating. Anything else you'd recommend? I know you spoke about this two-week preparatory phase that you went to in the beginning. And anything else you'd recommend short of the three-day fast? Is it abstinence from certain things, you know, certain substances perhaps to avoid versus take? Yeah, I think that if you're preparing to have an experience of communion, that it's important to prepare for it. So you avoid the sugars. Sugars are absolutely deadly. You do intermittent fasting. You eat only during a six-hour period, and then you have 18 hours where you are abstaining from food, and that'll get you into ketosis without a lot of suffering, into burning fats for fuel. And then you want to find a quiet space that you can work out. So disconnect your phone, don't get on email. Set your intention to have an experience of your highest self. Leave God out of the equation. God is a factor of religion. This is not religion, this is spirituality. Spirituality is about exploration and discovery. 
by testing the limits and find out what your limits are. Be willing to look at your own dark face, at your own dark sides, the parts that you keep hidden even from yourself because the plants will show you that. That's why the ayahuasca, for example, is called the vine of the dead. Aya means dead, of death. You have to die to who you think you have been. And that's the fast route. The slow route is 30 years of therapy going through every difficult event in your life, one by one, until you realize that that was never you in the first place. So the ayahuasca is the path of death and resurrection and rebirth. It's one ceremony adequate. And we hear people doing, you know, four ceremonies in one week. You hear people doing one ceremony a month for in perpetuity. Do you have any recommended protocols or approaches for that? Prepare your body, prepare your brain. If you prepare right, one ceremony is all you need. It's like, you know, I just updated my computer to the newest operating system. Right. Once I've got it downloaded and installed, I don't need to go back and reinstall Snow Leopard. Is that the new one? <laughs> I downloaded it already. I just want to put it to work now. But most of us don't get it right the first time. It's kind of like relationships. It takes a couple of tries to get it right. And But if your brain is broken, if your hippocampus is not functioning properly, if you're not able to integrate a new experience, it doesn't matter how many times you go back, it's not gonna work. Upgrade the brain with the neuronutrients, DHA. It's in my book, Grow a New Body. You start by upgrading the brain. And then if you decide to go the route of plant medicine, do err on the side of too little at the beginning. Because if you do too much, you're gonna begin to short the system out. You're gonna slip back into fear. And you wanna step into love and into the sense of communion with all of creation, and then bring that back and integrate it into your life. What type of diet do you follow now in your quest to obviously live in this elevated state over long periods of time? Is it uh, predominantly vegetarian-based, or is it going to be some meat from time to time? As you say, what's your focus? You know, for millennia, we were hunters and gatherers. So we did not we were lucky enough to find some roadkill or to catch a bison and we would have a feast in the village and then we might fast for three days or live on the nuts and the berries that we found along the way. So I tried to have a paleo-based diet, but primarily plant-based, nutrient-dense, calorie-poor, no sugars. I eat meat, but not frequently. Free-range, grass-fed, and uh, I, I pray over my food. I bless my food, and I know that I get a lot of more nutrient value out of that experience. So the things to avoid are the things that cause inflammation. For me, I, if I touch a piece of cheese, I react to dairy. So I have no dairy in my life, as much as I love a nice piece of cheese. And if I do, then I'll have a goat cheese, which is a much smaller molecule than the cow, than the milk from cow. Remember that milk is full of growth factors. That's why they give it to babies. And it's fine if you're under 40 to be working with the growth factors, but after that, you're gonna be growing cancers. So I avoid the milk. Um, and if I do have some, I'll have a little bit of goat milk because I love coffee. Coffee is a great NRF2 activator. But only if you're, which is the longevity genes, but only if your fight or flight is attenuated, is toned down. If you get wound up with coffee, you know your fight or flight system is overactive. So I 
try to eat small portions. I skip a meal here and there. I do intermittent fasting. My brain works best when it's uh, running on ketones. So, but then, you know, I love chocolate. So the beauty of having a clean diet is you're able to break the rules occasionally and the body recovers very quickly. Wonderful. At this point in your life, are you still in a phase of discovery? Is there still new things that you're exploring or is it mostly about giving back and sharing your wisdom with your breeders and your followers and your tribe? No, it's all about discovery. The giving back is simply, I enjoy that, but I was just part of a um, of a NASA team going to one of the highest peaks in South America, 21,000 foot high glacier to document glacier loss. And we took all the shamans with us and we were hiking at extremely high altitude. And I'm amazed how well my body's responding to, because I keep it in shape. My mitochondria respond quickly. So I like to test it. You know, six years ago, I had a big health crisis. I was told since I was an anthropologist, I'd spent time in the Amazon, in the jungles, and in Indonesia and Africa. And I picked up all of these viruses and parasites. And my liver was shot. Literally was told to get in line for a liver transplant. I had holes in my heart and parasites in my brain. And the doctor said, look, you get a liver transplant. You may need a heart transplant. And you'll be lucky if you can walk 100 yards after this. So I went and did energy medicine. I grew a new body. I used Western medicine to kill the bugs because I had viruses. I had hepatitis. There are five kinds of hepatitis. I had all five of them and one of them active. And this is the stuff you pick up when you're an anthropologist. It, you know, in faraway places. So I used Western medicine to kill the parasites and to kill the bugs, but then I had a dead liver, a heart full of holes, and a brain full of dead parasites. So I grew a new body. I was told I wouldn't be able to walk 100 yards. Well, a year after that, I went to Mustang in Nepal, hiked for three weeks at 12,000 feet altitude. So we can do this. We are living miracles. The body is so resilient. That's amazing. Are you able to discuss what the trip up the 21,000 foot mountain was with NASA? Was that, what was the reason behind bringing the shaman? Well, there was no security clearance needed. Basically, it's about climate change and receding glaciers. And this is the, was the holiest mountain. Remember that around the world, God has always approached humans in the high places, in Mount Fuji in Japan and Mount Sinai with Moses. And the same with the shamans. This was their holy mountain, and the glaciers were melting, which to them meant that the gods were not speaking to them any longer. So we did some aerial photography, satellite photography, and on-site glacial course to look at the, the rate of deglaciation, and it was scary. Any, any insight on the findings? Like how, when you say scary? Well, the, it's happening a lot more quickly than, than we anticipate, a lot more quickly than we, than we believe. That's the, um, that's the bad news, and that it may be beyond the point of our being able to really do anything about it. Now, I don't subscribe to that line of thought, but this is simply what the data is showing, is that it's so rapid and the retreat is so dramatic that um, it's impacting water flows throughout the world. 
Himalayan glaciers are also receding rapidly. And a billion people depend on the Yellow River, the glaciers that feed the Yellow River. But at the same time, we had a beautiful blessing ceremony in the high mountains. Absolutely incredible. Um, do you still have a daily meditation practice? I meditate every morning. And I meditate throughout the day. My meditation is brief, 90-second moments of meditation. So I give myself about 15 seconds with the breath to get into a very quiet state. And then I expand. I imagine my feel expanding to include all of the nature around me. And I feel the trees breathing with me. I feel the river flowing within me. I feel the clouds within me that I and creation are one. We're no longer separate. And 90 minutes later, I go back to the next book that I'm working on. It's 90 seconds, right? 90 seconds. I can't do it. I can't do an hour. No. That's all right. I mean, I think once you've become an expert at it, getting into that state is much quicker like anything, right? Once you, once you know how to do it, you can get there so much quicker. Yeah. It's like the exercise routine that I you know, I want to, we have to tailor it to our taste. But most of all, I really want to invite our listeners to be part of this experiment in higher intelligence, in consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, to turn on your higher brain. If you're going to use the plant medicines, do it carefully and discreetly. Change your fuel for the ketones, for the fat. Repair the brain and upgrade the brain. Then you'll be part of the experiment. And if you're not in the experiment, then you get to be in the control group. And the control group is not pretty. We know that. Dr. Valal, this is absolutely fascinating. And if people wanted to visit your place in uh, Chile, is it? why don't you tell them where we can find more about your facility? You can find more about what we do. I train modern shamans today at our website, the4winds.com, F-O-U-R-W-I-N-D-S, the4winds.com, and shows you our training programs and our expeditions. We still lead expeditions to the Amazon and to Peru. And there's a lot of free information there on how you can grow a new body as well. And that is specific for people who are aspiring to be shaman? No, that's specifically for people that are aspiring to be smarter. Okay. And how long is the uh, endeavor at the Four Winds? Well, we do weekend programs and we have virtual programs that you can do remotely. And then if you're interested in becoming a an energy medicine practitioner, that's a long training. That's a 28-day training or virtual six-month training where you learn the the energy medicine skill set. Fascinating. And I bet there's going to be a lot of people out there who are joining you on your two-year wait list. So Thank you, Ben. And thank you for the beautiful work you do and for how you're bringing more consciousness and awareness to to all of us. Thank you. And I may just be one of those people down there at your shaman retreats very, very soon. Don't be surprised. Come and join us. I would love to have you. All All right. right. Be well. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap. Thank you very much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, I hope you love this podcast. And if you do, share it with at least one person you know that will love it and wants to live a great life. We all ultimately want to live our greatness, whatever that looks like to you. We're here to support it. And we're here to help you and educate you and help you put all the pieces together. It's such a hard journey sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to understand, you know, what should I be doing? You know, do my genetics matter? And do my environment matter? Yes, all of these things matter and learning which lever to pull 
is kind of the mission of this podcast is teaching you how to look at all of the integrated parts of this machine that we're ultimately living in and learn how to thrive. And every one of you has it in you. Every one of you has love in you. Every one of you has the ability to give love, accept love, accept yourself and thrive. And when you do that as a foundation of life, if you learn to accept yourself and accept who you are and love yourself, your body will begin to reflect that. Your life will begin to reflect that. So again, I hope you guys are living uh, with a huge smile on your face when you wake up every morning and saying thank you for everything around you. And regardless of how hard the season is for you right now, I realize it's just that. It's a season. Springtime will soon be here. And for those of you thriving in the spring and the summer, keep on going. Ride it as long as you can. And again, welcome the obstacles, right? Take on the obstacles knowing they're the, your only opportunity for progress and growth. I hope you guys are crushing it. Have a great day, guys. Share it with at least one person you know that will love it. Muscle Intelligence Podcast, out. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.